Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah. This is Aaron Walls from San Francisco, California. And you're listening to David, Catherine, and Matt at The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to The Tennis Podcast, introduced today by Aaron Waltz, who tells us that he is just back from a trip to Melbourne. Us too, Aaron. He says, as well as going to the tennis, he was visiting family because his mum is Australian. Aaron tells us that many years ago, his mum visited San Francisco from Melbourne and met his dad. They went to a Tony Bennett concert called I Left My Heart in San Francisco. He proposed, she said yes, and that's the reason he exists. So um, to everybody that has... Uh, a shout out coming up on the tennis podcast. Please know that the bar has been raised for backstory, uh, and we now need to know the uh, the circumstances of your conception. That <laughs> is uh, that is where Aaron has raised the bar to. Thank you very much. <laughs> Unclear, Aaron, um, whether did the proposal happen on at the fir- on their first date. Uh, that is that's something I'd like to know. I, I, I can give you additional backstory if you want, Catherine, because I, I it was all in the email, but I I did give you an abridged version. How um, how and, long? What, what was the what was the time period between first date and proposal? That's what I'd quite like to know. I don't think it was very long, but I do know that initially uh, she she said no, <laughs> and then and then and then the additional trip to tony bennett happened and then things turned around wow okay okay big big (laughs) big additional information thank you aaron for introducing the show today aaron also tells us that when he was at the tennis in melbourne his highlight of the tournament was adrian manorino against Ben Shelton and um, we recorded our Australian Open review show this week. We've been intending to record it while we were still in Melbourne but David was obviously feeling under the weather at the uh, at the back end of that trip. You'll notice that David is back. Welcome back David as uh, so we Thank recorded you. our review show when we got back and um, it's great by the way. Do become a friend of the tennis podcast in order to listen but somehow Manorino against Shelton didn't come up did it and yet Matt I would say that watching that uh, with you and cameraman Matthew definitely was one of my very favorite moments of the tournament 
Yeah, mine too. We went for the uh, Ben Shelton show, didn't we? And we actually we actually got the Adrian Manorino show. Like it was kind of remarkable the things that he was doing with that uh, loosely strung racket of his. And yeah, of course, this was the match where we where we got the answer to that question: What is Adrian Manorino doing? And he told us that that the answer is tequila, which is one of the quotes of the year, I think, already. Yeah, definitely do drink tequila if you're playing Ben Shelton. Definitely don't drink tequila if you're playing Novak Djokovic. That's what we learned from Adrian Manorino <laughs> uh, in Melbourne this year. Incidentally, I saw uh, I saw my dad in the week. Uh, in fact, Matt and I both saw David Whitaker in the week because he came to pick us up from from Heathrow Airport, and uh, I asked him because he's a he's a racket stringer by trade these days, and I asked him whether he had. Any client requests for the Manorino? And he said, not yet. So um, <laughs> Manorino's influence hasn't hasn't quite trickled down to the grassroots yet, but we will watch the situation very closely. Uh, David, it's great to have you back. How are you doing? Oh, thank you very much. Very, very well now that I am. What are we sort of five days into the jet lag recovery and... I feel like I'm getting somewhere. So, um, you know, I'm still getting up at five something every morning. Um, but that's better than expected. So uh, very happy to be back and chatting to you two again. David did Pilates this morning. Matt's already played yep. tennis this morning. We're we're Daniel Medvedev, aren't we? It's, it's new year, new us. <laughs> yeah. Did you win, Matt? <laughs> no. <laughs> Also, New Year, New Year, same us. Um, (laughs) Tennis, tennis, of course, will never change. It just keeps happening. There has been such a ridiculous amount of tennis happening this week, considering it. It feels like it should just be a recovery week for everybody. But tennis has other ideas, folks. We've had WTA events in Linz, uh, Austria, a 500 in Huahin. Thailand a 250 and we've had an ATP event in Montpellier a 250 and we've had Davis Cup qualifiers taking place all over the world let's start in Linz Austria because that is the points wise the the biggest event that we've had this week and it was won by Yelena Rostopenko who beat Ekaterina Alexandrova quite handily in the final in fact Yelena Rostopenko is keeping up one of well, I mean, it's early days, but one of my favourite stats of 2024 so far, which is that Yelena Ostapenko is unbeaten against players that aren't Victoria Azarenka. And my my sort of sliding doors counterfactual that I'm I'm desperate to know about and never will is what would have happened if she hadn't got Victoria Azarenka so early in the Australian Open draw? I mean, she is playing serious tennis, potentially the best tennis of her career. And she's doing it consistently at the moment. She's doing it week in, week out. Okay, it's early days in the season, but this is already as sustained a period of of consistency as I think we've ever seen from Elaine Rostopenko. It's the first time she's won two titles in a season since 2017, of course, her her Grand Slam title winning season. And, you know, it's only it's only the first week of February and, and she's already done that. And I think she's been to the final of every event that she's played so far this season, either in singles or doubles. You know, if she hasn't made it in singles, 
she's got there in doubles. Like, I just did not have consistency on my bingo card, really, for Ostapenko at all, ever. And so it, it, it is really impressive to see her to see her doing that. And I think this week I would sort of add resilience as, as a word that that I was impressed with because, you know, as I said, she was in the Australian Open doubles final. She then flew all the way to Linz and was down to Clara Towson in that in that first round and could very easily have lost that match, ended up coming through it in a deciding set tie break. And then once she'd got that match sort of out of the way she just absolutely thrashed everyone else that she played in the entire week she is just in in such good form at the moment and yeah against everyone except Azarenka as you said one of my one of my favorite graphics that I've ever seen in tennis was um Roger Federer at the I think it was the 2006 French Open where where graphic comes up you know, so we're we're sort of midpoint of the season there, and 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 the graphic says that he's forty four and O against everyone, not named Rafael Nadal that year, and he's O and three against Rafael Nadal to start two thousand and six, and and it feels like feels like Ostapenko's got her own little thing going on because yeah, she's I think thirteen and O against everyone else, and O and two against Azarenka, but um, yeah, like such a fun addition to the to the tour i think ostapenko being relevant and consistent and and winning big yeah sort of long may it continue i i think particularly as well because she can actually hurt the very best players i i think there's a big question mark over her against rabakina because of of the difference in their serves but we've seen what ostapenko did to shvantek i feel like she can hurt Sabalenka, if Sabalenka doesn't have a good serving day, um, and and because she has no respect for reputations, not not that she doesn't respect other players, but she never lets anything stop her. You know, you, you mentioned earlier the Manorino contrast between when he played uh, Ben Shelton and then when he played Novak Djokovic, and and look, I think matchup wise, that's a bad one for him against Djokovic, but I just get the sense as well that. Maybe he doesn't really believe that he can beat the guy uh, or belongs in his company in the same way. And then you get Ostapenko. She believes she can beat anybody and that she she probably should beat them all. Um, and, and what did she say? Her New Year's resolution was to be more aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be working. Yeah, doesn't it just? I mean, it, it, I always think with Elena Ostapenko when I'm sort of speculating on, you know, what does it all mean? How far can she go? And I'm sort of trying to convince myself, you know, she's a Grand Slam champion. She's back in the top 10. It could happen. Then, And then I remember her her serve and in particular her second serve. And I think, oh, you know, that's, that's just always going to hold her back. But then it's got, it, you know, she's got this far. Um, maybe she's just the absolute master of protecting a weakness, which is... You know, one of one of Carrillo's three laws, isn't it? Um, yeah, such a fun addition to to the top ten, and and I think um, in in Adelaide when she won Adelaide, that was when she sealed her return to the to the singles top ten. I think I, I remember thinking, well, that's cool, but also thinking that's you know she's probably not going to be a fixture there. You know, maybe she'll bob in and out a bit. But I'm starting to think, oh, maybe. She, Maybe Elena Ostapenko could qualify for the for the finals wherever they are, um, and wouldn't that be fun to have her there? Mm, uh, do you, you know, I also wonder 
watching her sometimes do you ever feel like what would have happened had she not won the french open now obviously she would have been without a grand slam title there but did that hold her back in some way from developing in a normal way you know if you think back all those of all the the outcome of a, a grand slam the hype that comes with it the the attention you know, it, it came came at her pretty out of the blue, didn't it? I, I I don't have an answer to that, but it's one of those. I'd 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 be almost fascinated to to know what that slide indoors might have led to. Well, we'll never know. But what I would say is, it, it's it's a good model, isn't it, of how it can take quite a lot of time after such a mm. life altering uh, event such as winning a Grand Slam totally out of the blue. Um, and obviously there are very direct parallels here to Emma Raducanu. And um, once again, I was in the pub pub last night, um, ended up chatting to, to a couple of people nearby and who might be listening now, actually. They did leave the pub saying, oh, I'm going to look up your tennis podcast. Um, but Emma Raducanu came up and it was, you know, what's happened to her, which for a casual tennis fan in the UK is a is a legitimate question, I think. It's just... I I I sigh at sort of the answer because there's just so much you want to say and so much that we don't know. Um, but I but I do kind of want to point to Elena Ostapenko as an example of how it 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 can take a really really long time, and she's still she's still incredibly young, Ostapenko, and might might very well still have her best years best years ahead of her. I mean, if she could if she can only lose to Victoria Azarenka. Who who knows what's possible for her? <laughs> and and she did actually back up winning the Slam quite well in in the first year. I, I, I remember I think she got to in twenty eighteen. Didn't she do well in Miami? And I think she also did pretty well at Wimbledon that year. Like I think those are probably her best results at the biggest events since her Slam title. You know, in the in the year that immediately followed. Um, but sort of. Since then, she hasn't really been able to to play this style of tennis over seven matches, and I think that is still the question mark. You know, like a like a title run in in Linz is you know brilliant, but it's only four matches, and you know when you play that high risk tennis that she does, it's just very hard to sustain it. I think over a whole tournament, and I think you know last year's U.S. Open is probably the absolute classic example of that. She could not have been better against Iga Svantec and then she could not have been worse in the next round against Coco Goff. And that, along with her serve, are the two things that I would I would still say it feels like quite a long way for her to, to win another major. But um, if she can actually, like, somehow manage to sustain it then and, and, and not run into Victoria Azarenka then sort of anything is possible for her it's 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 really exciting uh it's it's a it's a 500 now lintz you might be thinking that this is a strange place for it to be in the calendar it used to be at the end of the year uh in the in the post us open indoor hard court swing it's now been upgraded to a 500 event and finds itself in this you know post australian open pre sunshine double swing nether zone um there there are quite a few wta events that have been upgraded to 500s i think 
um, you know, it's it's a big opportunity for some players to pick up pick up big points. But it is it is one of those you look at and go, wow, gosh, that's a five hundred. That's that's a little bit weird. Mm. And, and and there was a classic uh, Ostapenko line about that because she reached the final of Linz when it was a two fifty. I think she lost to Coco Goff in the final of Coco Goff's first title back in 2019. And, um, you know, she said, oh, I'm, I'm glad I won it now uh, because, you know, it's a it's a 500. And also, like, they've they've upgraded the trophy and it was much shinier and nicer <laughs> and better. And she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased I got this one rather than that other one. <laughs> I do like that they've upgraded the trophy to reflect the tournament's new status. I do think that's cool. And there are some very Elena Ostapenko-esque, iconic photos of her with that trophy that if you're feeling low, I'd uh, I'd suggest you, you try and take a look at because they are great. Um, the WTA 250 event in Hua Hin, Thailand, was won by Diana Schneider, the, the Russian whose name you might remember from a run she had at the Australian Open last year. She is, uh, or she was a US college player that had to make the decision about whether to go pro and take her uh, third round, I think it was, Australian Open prize money or whether to to stay uh, an amateur and stay playing for her college team for the remainder of the season, which she had committed to do. She is now pro uh, and she is now a title winner in Hua Hin. And I, I, I'm I, a big believer in Diana Schneider. This is one where I both feel, I feel very pleased for her, but I also feel pleased for me because it's, a, <laughs> it's just a little bit of validation for a player that I've been banging on about for a little while uh, without the results quite reflecting it but she's she's officially happening now david it, it it is one of the things i love about the sport and and about the podcast and, and things like that it is there are certain players i just associate with certain people and yula Niemeyer, i will always think of hannah who's who christened her a, a wimbledon champion of the future when she first saw her um and with Matt, it's obviously Nicholas Jarry. With me, it's probably Arta Fies and Maxine Cressy. Name another 25 from about the last 10 years uh, who've probably gone on to do next to nothing. Uh, but with you, Catherine, it has always been Diana Schneider. Why? Oh, why do I think she's good? Why do you, why do you like her so much? I mean, like when I turn on the TV... And or more to the point, when I saw the the tweet, I, I have to say I've had a really hard job this last week keeping up with all this tennis. I really wasn't wasn't ready for this at all. Um, but so suddenly Diana Schneider's in the final and winning it, right? So mm. I I didn't know about the, the the fact she'd been on this run. I saw this, and the first thing I thought was, "Oh, Catherine's going to be chuffed." What, and I really want to know why it is. I think she looks really cool. I like her bandana and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious as to what, what, what got you with her. Uh, well, sorry to sound incredibly uh, frivolous in my analysis, but the bandana is quite a big part of it. I do think that's incredibly cool. <laughs> Uh, she's the only. She, there, there are no other bandana wearing tennis players. It's it's no. really really cool. I love it. Uh, she is a lefty. She's very very intense. She looks just so busy on a tennis court. She just 
she's one of those players that I, if I'm watching a match, that, and look, I haven't seen her all that much. She hasn't been a, a, around all that much. She's still only 19. But if I'm if I'm watching a match that she's involved in, I end up just watching her side of the court quite a lot. She just catches my eye, and um, yeah, she's she, she's got power. She's got serious power. Um, I, look, I felt the same as you, David, with tennis this week. Uh, it was. It was a bit of a struggle, uh, but it did look to me like the movement had um, had improved a bit, as you'd expect. Um, and I just think she's really fun, really fun and interesting, perfect alchemy of cool personality, clearly has something about her. Um, has has I always think players that have been to college, they just, even if they've only been for a year or two, not necessarily even completed their degrees, like they, they just have slightly more about them on average they just have slightly more experience and perspective on the world um i think she's good news um and look it's a it's a it's a 250 title in a in a not hugely competitive field um but it it's still massive it's still a a you know it's a it's a benchmark ticked off isn't it? She beat Magda Lynette. She beat uh, Zhu Lin in the final. As she beat uh, Paula Bedosa as well. So it's it's not nobody's. Um, and I'm I'm really interested to see how, see how she can take it into Miami and Indian Wells. And I think she's her ranking is up to about seventy in the world. Uh, seventy three is her singles ranking. So she should I think be getting into those events directly now which feels which feels quite a big you know jump up for her i want to see her against yeah. the best yeah and i and by the way one of my favorite andre agassi periods was when he was wearing a bandana in 1995 and he went on a run in which he won the australian open uh miami um toronto he won all sorts so you know bandanas i'm telling you it's interesting that that didn't create a sort of a wave of bandana wearing tennis players. Agassi's success. Mm. I remember it's putting taken it until to him Diana once. Schneider. Yeah, uh, I remember say, walking the corridors of the tournament in Basel in 1998. My first year on the tour as an ATP communications manager. His comeback year, and. Um, and we're walking around this corridor and one of the pictures on the wall that they had was of him in his bandana era three years earlier. And uh, so, and I remember walking and saying, oh, the bandana, you played you played the best tennis of your life wearing the bandana, didn't you? <laughs> and he goes, I did actually. <laughs> <laughs> Little did we know he would actually usurp that the following year by, uh, by winning the French Open out of the blue and, and then the US Open. And he didn't have a bandana, but still. It was a, it was a look he pulled off, and now I'm very delighted to see somebody else coming along with it. I remember when I watched her briefly in U.S. Open qualifying last year. The members of her team were were also wearing bandanas oh, really? on the sideline, which I thought was a nice touch. I don't know what she looks like without it. I have no idea. <laughs> no, I don't ever want to find out. It's I don't like, want to. It's like no. when we saw Matt without his glasses on very briefly uh, in Australia. <laughs> and I felt discombobulated for quite some time afterwards. Uh, the ATP tour this week has been in Montpellier. 
Uh, the title there was won by Alexander Bublik. He beat Borna Chorich in the final and set a record. I think he's become the first ATP player to win a title after coming from a set down in every single match that he played to win said title. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, which, I mean, you could you could have given me a hundred guesses as as to which player would <laughs> would end up with that stat, and I would not have come up with Alexander Bublik. I had a look at his record last year from a set down, and he won twice. And <laughs> this tournament, this tournament, he won four in a row from no a set way. down. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. He won he won twice from a set down last year and lost twenty five times. Wow. <laughs> Here he is setting a record like that. It was it was absolutely wild, but in a way I suppose that I suppose it does make sense because Alexander Bublik is the kind of guy who does things that you don't expect. So it's both the sort of most unlikely Bublik stat to have, but also perhaps, you know, it 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 makes sense because he just does things that are a little bit wild and a little bit crazy and uh, yeah, it was a a phenomenal run to the title I um I watched him closely in the final against Chorich and like he is a better player than I realized like in my head Bublik is all you know first serves as second serves and slice backhands and trick shots and giving opponents no rhythm and you know there is a lot of that and I think his best tennis is sort of when it's improvised and creative and he's able to sort of make it flow even even under a pressure situation it's kind of it's kind of a skill that he has but actually he can he can really knuckle down and and rally and defend and sort of do a lot of things that you i suppose need to do to be able to win matches from a set down and i was i was just sort of really really impressed with him all week um and yeah like again he's a He's a fun addition. Like I, I don't, I, I don't see him in in the same terms as Ostapenko in terms of like I think Ostapenko, as she's shown, is is capable of winning at the at the very very highest level. I, I, I do think the just relentless brilliance of of most of the top players is is going to be too much for Bublik to sort of keep up with. But he can he can pop up in weeks like this. He's won four titles now, Montpellier a couple of times, and it's just always fun to watch him play tennis we also had um latest player to puke in a bin the the puke <laughs> the puke in a bin um theory well no i mean the the puke in a bin theory it has has the puke in a bin theory been dis- disproven or has it just been proven to be a purely yannick sinner related theory well the, but and there's jack draper as well yeah. Basically, puking um, in a bin didn't work for Felix Auger-Leon, is what I'm see, trying I d- to say. I don't agree. He went and won that match for a start, and he got to the semi-finals. No, he didn't win the tournament, but who knows what it leads to. He, I mean, look, obviously we're, we're, we're messing around, but at the same time, I do think it shows great perseverance and determination. To, to to feel as badly as he was obviously feeling and going and winning anyway. And that's that's the theme with all three of those. Now I I find Felix Ogiani a really 
sad story at the moment because because he he had so much hype and I realise that people like me are also to blame as part of that, putting the pressure on him. And he's had these incredible moments. He's won the Davis Cup. But he is having a tough time overall in his singles career at the moment. Um, and I think back to him absolutely thrashing Sinner at a, at a tournament, last, I think last year, early last year. Um, something like six two six one or something like that. Now, Sinner was a different player back then too. But if Sinner can do what he's doing, why can't Felix Auger-Aliassime do something similar, really? Are they that different yeah. as, as tennis players? I don't think yeah. they are. I don't think they are. I really oh, don't. Oh, I think Yannick Sinner is a lot better than than Felix Auger-Aliassime. At the moment, he is, but I don't think he should be. I don't. I think Auger-Aliassime should be looking at that and thinking, I killed this guy in a match last year. And if my game is on, it hurts people. Why isn't it hurting people more often, more relentlessly? Look, there's, there's no, there's no doubt that Felix Orgelia seems should should be doing better than he is and has been doing. I know injury has been a part of that, but I definitely don't think the full part of it. But I, I don't think there is anywhere near the upside to his game that there is with, with Sinners. I mean, Sinner has pretty much totally equal weaponry on the forehand and the backhand and Felix has got a massive deficit on the backhand I just don't think he's as instinctive a tennis player as as Yannick Sinner I think he's sort of mechanical in a way that that Yannick Sinner Yannick Sinner isn't that look he he should be doing better but I I don't think even peak or Jolio seem has has grand slams in him Really, not with not with the caliber of of how good everybody else is and how good his his generation is proving to be. I don't know. Matt, Matt's always been the great Orgelia scene believer, so you, you might have <laughs> you might have support there. I don't know. I think I'm more with you on this one, Catherine. Oh, I, I think there's some there's some sort of slight inherent doubt that I think Auger seem has when he when he plays in, in a way that I think Sinner has right now full trust in his game and I, I feel like with Auger seem when I watch him I almost feel like I'm I'm sort of waiting for it to go a bit wrong and I, because I can see him feeling that a little bit I, I don't know whether I'm totally reading too much into it but I don't know like I just trust Sinner's mentality in a way that I don't trust Orgelia seem right now. And I think you're right, like maybe back end of 2022 when he was winning all those matches indoors and he carried Canada to the to the Davis Cup in much the same way that Sinner carried Italy, okay, without, you know, beating Novak Djokovic along the way. But, you know, still a similar thing, putting his country on his shoulders and delivering. Right there was probably when I most believed in Orgelia seem and it did feel like he was confident, but sort of all other points in his career I'm I'm sort of waiting waiting for him to crack a bit and and I do think I do think some of the sort of mechanical nature of his game is part of that you can see the you can see it all thinking it's not it's not as instinctive as I think it is with with Sinner and um 
Yeah, I mean, he has got a very good indoor record, Ogiele seem like. I, I, I did think he would probably go on to win this title and he, and he's lost to the eventual champion in in Bublik. So I do think, like, indoors, he's he's been pretty good, really, Ogiele seem, but he is in, in, a, in a tough spot in his in his career at the moment. I would say, though, David, um, that the, the, the thought process, the mentality that you described of... of you know, I I beat this guy less than a year ago. There's no reason I can't be doing what he's doing. That's absolutely what Felix Orgelia seems should be thinking. He definitely shouldn't be shouldn't be listening to me. That's what his mind should be telling him, whether it's whether it's true or not. Um, so further it, it, evidence that totally... everybody needs a hype man like David Law. <laughs> it, it is. I think you've got you've both got it nailed on though. It's. I mean. I, Look, there is a, a discrepancy between their two backhands, a, a big one, and yeah. I, I, that 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 provides a vulnerability to to Ogiele-Sim, just nuts and bolts wise. But the big difference is that is that look in his eye as he's walking around on the court is the is the waiting for it to go wrong, which you, I think you had it with Sinner for a while uh, last year, even when, when there were certain matches when he just wasn't as convincing. Post puke, he's a different guy, and who knows? <laughs> Maybe that's Felix's moment. But I, I just hope I'd love to see Ajeliasim fulfil his potential, which I do believe is a little bit above where he's already been, and he's already been quite far. Will he ever get back there? Is is a big question mark right now? Do we need to be worried about the prevalence of puking in bins in in men's tennis? <laughs> is that feels like it? That's happening more and more. Is it just that bins are being made more readily available? People used to do their puking in private. I, I don't know the answers to any of these questions. I'm just throwing it all out there. I feel like public puking has become quite a big part of our <laughs> podcasting lives. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> if you know the well, answers, watch the guys, space. <laughs> let us know. Just at Tennis Podcast. Um, before we come on to talk about some other bits and bobs of news from the week in tennis, there have been Davis Cup qualifiers over the weekend. Matt, you've been covering them for the ITF. Uh, could you distill it down to some key headlines for us? Yes, I would. I would start by saying that, like, I find it really interesting because this is this is traditional Davis Cup. This is home and away ties, twelve of them. This is what everyone wants the competition to be. And yet it kind of made almost no noise in in the tennis world, which I think was was sort of always the problem. Like, you know, it's it's sort of pigeonholed into this weekend after the Australian Open. It doesn't feel like it's got its own space in the calendar. And if you watch any of these ties, you will think, oh, this is this is peak tennis, like Everyone is into it. The atmospheres are incredible. And yet, why is there kind of no wider buzz? Why is it not, you know, why is everyone not watching this? Why is it not available to watch everywhere, you know? Um, So that's sort of how I would sort of preface it all. Um, I think the big headline is Serbia are out. Um, Novak Djokovic was not playing for them. They had Ketsmanovic and Lejevic. And, you know, it's just quite interesting, isn't it? Novak Djokovic said last year what a priority Davis Cup was for him. But I think 
it's always so fascinating because he's not totally in control of of Serbia's fate in in the Davis Cup. You know whether that be whoever whoever else is playing singles or the doubles. But you know if he doesn't if he doesn't go to the to the qualifying tie, it's it's totally out of his control. Uh, but even so, you know in Serbia they picked the surface. They went for clay that favors Ketsmanovic and Lajovic, and they were beaten pretty handily by Slovakia um, with with our. Our friend from the Australian Open, Lucas Klein, who who we we so enjoyed watching, um, he he delivered a singles win and a doubles win for Slovakia. So he he sort of carried on that that good form that he did have at the Australian Open. Um, Croatia also out, one of you know one of the sort of big tennis nations over the past few years. Uh, they lost to to Belgium, and then there were three ties that all went to a decider uh Netherlands beating Switzerland with Bortik van der Zanskulp winning the winning the crucial match an amazing atmosphere there with all the all the Dutch fans in their orange suits you know as as we've become used to seeing um Chile beat Peru in a decider despite Nicholas Jarry losing to a guy ranked outside of the top 400 on day one, he did. He He's did redeem a great himself. Year, Jerry, is he? <laughs> well, he did redeem himself on day two and and get a must-win singles victory. And then Alejandro Tabilo got the uh, crucial point there. And honestly, the seams. I mean, Nicolas Massu, who is a you know a gold medal winner for Chile in in singles and doubles. You know, it, it seemed like this was the peak of his life when when Chile won that he was he was in tears on the side in, incredible scenes and then probably the best tie was Argentina Kazakhstan which was one of the ones I was covering played in Rosario in Argentina in 40 degree heat they were literally spraying the people in the crowd with water because it was so hot I, I sort of felt for everyone involved and yet it it delivered this incredible tie where, you know, Kazakhstan, obviously without Alexander Bublik, because he was busy winning Montpellier, but they had this guy, Timofey Skatov, who was a former junior number one, but had only ever had one top 100 win in his entire life. He beat two top 30 players on clay in Argentina. He beat Surundalo and he beat Echeverri to, to, take Kazakhstan into a deciding uh, match and that match was Popov against Baez Popov had two match points in the final set tie break but Sebastian Baez reeled off four points in a row and Argentina won uh, and they're now on a six match winning streak at home and there were just absolutely incredible scenes there as well but like an amazing effort from from Kazakhstan to take it all the way to that deciding set tie break in the deciding match, despite, you know, a huge ranking differential between the teams. Uh, so yeah, like really good, fun stuff, but stuff that was hard to watch and hard to find and, and doesn't have the the same cut through as, as the tour events. And it's a shame because like, yeah, you, you watch any of these ties and, and they're all like amazing fun. Thanks, Matt. Glad, uh, glad we could cover that in such detail. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tie break or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Before we talk about the tennis that is happening this week, there were some bits and bobs of news from the tennis world from the week that has just gone by. We've had... uh, the Marseille Open Twitter account versus Yannick Sinner. It's it's my new favourite rivalry, David. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. This was I I I'd been monitoring Marseille's Twitter activity because of how excited they were getting about Yannick Sinner's progress at the Australian <laughs> Open and winning the title. And, you know, this is what you do. I've, I've worked at Queen's and players have had a run at the French Open and you're, you're getting excited because they're coming to you next, you know. And Sinner was signed up to play Marseille. And, and so, the, the yeah, really jolly tweet about this. Next tweet... Sinner snubs Marseille. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Catherine, a fluent French speaker, I think you just that was your your moment of discovering what, what snubbed is in French, correct? <laughs> Didn't know the word snubbed in French. But a, a massive omission from uh, Nottingham University in my uh, my undergraduate degree. Uh, but on my next trip to France for the French Open, I will be... Finding ways to introduce uh, snobby, snob, mm. snob mm. into uh, into conversation with random French people. You can say that Roland Garros snubs the women in the night session. We can, we can. Uh, oh, and we will get a rollout. Nightly rollout. Okay. <laughs> um, and I mean, listen, the, just the the sheer 
childishness of the response <laughs> was just epic from from Marseille because so often and I've been in this situation before you get a player pull out on you and you're you're gutted and and it does go through your mind to say what you really think on those official channels but you don't you rise above and you play the big guy and you, you know you you say oh totally understand that Yannick Sinner couldn't come after winning the Australian Open hope he's back here next year and to see an official account think, no, <laughs> screw that. I'm pissed <laughs> off. And I'm going to tell everybody about it. Yannick Sinner snubbed us. And I don't like it. <laughs> and uh, and they got a lot of pushback from uh, from followers. And they eventually deleted it. But they didn't just delete it. They then replaced it with something which wasn't that much more. Sort of uh, <laughs> um, making They just names. replaced the word snubbed, didn't they? They did, yes. And, and then, another and then word they just snubbed. <laughs> then they did several replies to people ask, asking questions. And refused to back down, and we're not apologising for <laughs> for being annoyed. Um, and uh, I, it was just wonderful. <laughs> it's indicative, isn't it? Of look, the, these two fifty events. I mean, generally two fifty events. There's the odd one that punches above its weight, but in in a extremely crowded market where even for the biggest tennis fans there is too much tennis especially in in you know the few weeks after a grand slam it's really really hard for these these events to to have major international relevance and cut through that's just that's just a fact but when you're in them and working on them or attending them or you're you know you're in Montpellier it's the absolute center of your universe and it's what a lot of people work 51 weeks a year on and it, and, and it's that's absolutely lovely isn't it and and they do they get sell out crowds at those events pretty much all of the french yeah. events do and i can i can understand being so much in that bubble of but this is everything to us how dare yannick sinner treat it like it's just collateral damage after his after his big win how dare he treat us like we're nothing so i do i do get that kind of parochial sort of sensitivity to to someone you know thinking oh i'm too big for that now and yet i also think it was absolutely the right thing for yannick sinner to do yeah if he'd have played it we would have thought he was mad marseille should have seen it coming really like rather yeah. rather than massively celebrating his his reaching the end of the Australian Open, they they perhaps should have gone. Oh, this this diminishes our chances of of him coming. Maybe we should <laughs> maybe we should back off promoting him. But but look, I I get it, and it's it's sort of quite sweet, really. If uh, if ill advised from a uh, a PR point of view, uh, Holger Rune. Uh, and Severin Luthi, one of the, I, I think the record for shortest ever uh, coach-player partnership probably belongs to Jimmy Connors and Maria Sharapova currently. But I think coming in a hot second, we might have Holger Runa and Severin Luthi. Uh, blink and you missed it. What's What's happened here? I did read some quotes from Runa's mother, I think, saying just was quite clear this wasn't going to work <laughs> or something along those lines. She, she referenced scheduling conflicts, which I would have thought would be something that you worked out like at the start. And, you know, I, I think Sinfran Luti wasn't, 
wasn't going to be able to give as much time to Holger Rune as as they thought, you know, given that he seems to sort of play every event going. Like, that would probably require being on the road all the time if he's going to be there as his primary coach at all the events. And it sounds like Severin Luti didn't want to do that. And honestly, <laughs> like... a photo. <laughs> it is just kind of indicative that I, I do think that it's all a bit messy around Runa at the moment. Like, he's he's got the game, he's got the talent, but, you know, Yannick Sinner's a perfect example of how organised and sort of long-term thinking there is in, in that team. And everyone is everyone's on the same page. And it, it doesn't really feel like that with with Holger Runa. And even, even the fact that he is so often playing while injured. I mean, he, he unfortunately had to retire in, in Montpellier this week. It seemed to be a sort of forearm, elbow, wrist. I couldn't quite tell. Um, but, you know, not good. And um, it, it, it does feel like that sort of... All the, all the sort of organisation part of his life seems to be slightly, slightly holding him back. Um, as an outside observer, that's what it, that's what it feels like anyway. Yeah, there's, there was a big uh, magazine spread in Denmark, wasn't there, of Holger and his mum. And while his mum is sort of a very interesting and in many ways iconic figure in, in tennis at the moment, like it's an incredibly amusing amusing photo shoot the the front cover is him sort of sitting there and she's got her hand on his shoulder from from behind it's really weird um and look I've got nothing against her personally she seems she seems lovely I know uh friends at the ATP that have uh done some shooting with uh with Holger Rune and family back home in Denmark Denmark and they all report that she and the whole family are absolutely lovely however I don't think it's an accident that successful tennis players not that parents can't be involved but you know like we were saying at the end of at the end of the Australian Open about Coco Goff now talking about taking responsibility for her decision. She's still a teenager. Her parents still travel with her. They're involved in her life and that's fine. But she's in charge. She's she's a grown-up in the room just like they are. You know, Sabalenka's talked about that as well, taking greater responsibility kind of within the team environment. It doesn't seem or sound to me like Holger Runa is there yet he doesn't seem to be the ceo of holgaruna inc right now is how it is how it appears to me um and i and i think being in charge and taking responsibility is important regardless of who your parents are i don't think it's about them being good people or making good decisions or wanting what's best for you i'm quite sure she's all of that i just think kind of regardless it maybe he has some growing up to do but he's still incredibly young that can happen uh and let's hope it does because um i do i do love his tennis um but yeah it does seem pretty chaotic at the moment uh andy murray david is entering his uh angry tweet era (laughs) he's had a few of those over the course (laughs) of the last 15 years intermittently hasn't he Mm. yeah this um this was something that came off the back of a 
piece written by a colleague of ours, um, Keridine from the BBC, who somebody that I've known for many, many years. He he's covered Andy Murray. He works for BBC Scotland and has travelled for more than a decade just going to tennis tournaments. Um, to cover Andy Murray. And if Andy Murray lost, <laughs> he would go home, basically. Or if Jamie Murray was still in the doubles, he'd cover that. Um, and he wrote a, a piece over the uh, over the last week about the journey of Andy Murray and off the back of the, the defeat that he had last week, which was a, a particularly heartbreaking one for him because he lost to Benoit Paire, having won the first set. He was in a second set tie break. Paire hadn't won a match for 18 months. And Pear, in front of his own fans in Montpellier, went and won that match. And it did mean that this is a really long period of matches without wins for Andy Murray. It's not, it's not, not been a good time. So he wrote this piece, did Keridine, on the BBC Sport website. Um, and did include a line that, I must say, when I read it, I did think, oh... I don't agree with that personally. I'm not. I, I'm not sure about that. And and the gist of it was, how, how much more of this can happen before Murray starts to tarnish his his legacy? Um, and well, Andy Murray immediately, having read this piece, picked up on that line, and he he tweeted, "Tarnishing my legacy." do me a favour. I'm in a terrible moment right now. I'll give you that. Most people would quit and give up in my situation right now. But I'm not most people and my mind works differently. I won't quit. I will keep fighting and working to produce the performances I know I'm capable of. That's what Andy Murray tweeted. And oh my goodness, did that create waves because i mean look andy murray's got an absolutely massive social media following he's got three and a half million people who follow him and anything he tweets tends to get responses and picked up on he he always causes people to feel things is one of the reasons i think he's one of my favorite athletes ever is that i feel things when he talks and when he plays um no matter what he does and i think a lot of people feel like that but in this instance, it did seem to just bring everybody out into the conversation. And, and we had Andy Roddick and we had uh, um, lots and lots of other players just replying and, and kind of saying, how dare anybody suggest that Andy Murray shouldn't be doing what he wants to do and he can finish whenever he wants to finish and all this sort of thing. And I don't, I don't really think that Keradine was saying anything other than other than that, really, but he was pointing out generally that it's not going very well at the moment and, and how much longer can he keep this up? And I think that that's actually a fair point. I, I, I really disagree with the tarnishing of the legacy uh, element. I, don't, I think Andy Murray could never win another tennis match in the rest of his career and still play for another two years. It still wouldn't tarnish his legacy for me at all. I still think that Andy Murray can stop playing whenever he feels like. That's entirely up to him also. But I also think it's a perfectly legitimate article to write about the situation Murray finds himself in. He very nearly retired. We thought he'd retired five years ago. He's done. He's worked miracles to become a tennis player again with his metal hip and all the rest of it and everything that went on in that documentary resurfacing it's an incredible story. It's already a success story. But it does appear to have hit a bit of a brick wall now. And 
what sort of ending is he going to have in the end? What will he choose to have? When will he choose to bow out? These are conversations we have all the time because they're going on in his head all the time. I've asked him that specific question at the US Open last year. He said, I think about this and reevaluate it all the time. Perfectly understandably so. He wants to try to choose the right time at whatever that is. I understand why he got inflamed by this particular article because of that one line about tarnishing his legacy and because he's going through a tough time. I do understand why he reacted to that. I hate the pylon. I absolutely hate the... Oh, Andy Murray said something. We're all going to get involved. You know, we're all coming for you, Kerradine. And I just don't like that stuff. Um, And, uh, yeah, I was happy to stay away from it personally. Yeah, like the actual words of Murray's tweet were like everything that I love about Andy Murray, like the way he is out to prove people wrong and, and the way he can use something like that as fuel and and the way that, you know, he sort of framed himself as, you know, different to other people and that, that that's why he is where he is. Like, I loved that. and um, But there's such a power imbalance there where someone like Andy Murray with that following can just absolutely sort of detonate the journalist who's written an article which look I didn't agree with that that bit either I think I think it's a bit of a nonsense the idea that Andy Murray might be tarnishing his legacy I think I think the opposite is true if anything um but you know part of the reason that Andy Murray has got that power is because of people like Carradine who have gone out of their way to over the years provide coverage about him and you know make make him interesting for other people and put tennis up in lights you know without without the media Andy Murray doesn't necessarily have all that sort of influence that he does have and it it just sort of bothers me that he will know Carradine and he will know that he has supported him throughout his whole career and he's he's not necessarily tweeting the positive articles you know and saying saying thanks like I feel like there was a way of doing this pointing out to Carradine that he disagrees very strongly with the article but also not just inviting like a huge pile on where the rest of Carradine's sort of work and uh, career is is not even factored in and and, and everyone is, is judging him based on this one article like I find that a bit annoying and yeah I just think you know I saw Andy Murray added Piers Morgan yesterday about his about his Arsenal takes, and I felt like maybe you know stick to piling on Piers Morgan and uh... <laughs> uh, yeah, agree with every word of what you both said. No notes, no notes whatsoever. Um, Novak Djokovic has confirmed he's going to be playing Indian Wells. That'll be the first time he's played there since 2019 for a variety of different reasons: COVID, uh, travel bans on the unvaccinated, all of that. Uh, I'm sure they will welcome him back with open arms. They'll be absolutely thrilled he's returning. Um, we've reported uh, a lot over the past few weeks because uh, a lot of our listeners have been in touch with us about it on uh, Sky uh, regaining the rights to cover the tours and the US Open in the UK and some concerns that people have been having over lack of um, match selection so far and 
and uh, court court feeds, court streams. Uh, Well, we have had the announcement this week from Sky. They are going to be launching Sky Sports Tennis, a dedicated tennis channel uh, that'll be launched next week and it'll carry 4,000 matches from more than 80 tournaments a year on the ATP and WTA tours as well as full coverage of the US Open. The new channel will also be available to Now TV and Virgin subscribers and the press release also says there will be select catch-up content available on demand. So um, a bit of a watch this space. Undoubtedly, having a dedicated tennis channel is is great. Good on them. That's good news for tennis in the UK. Um, excited about that. And presumably it'll have non, non-live content as well, sort of get to know the players and the characters kind of stuff and behind the scenes stuff. And that's all good news. I do think, you know, what exactly that catch-up content, catch-up and on-demand content will will look like is going to be pretty crucial in terms of um how how certainly a certain a certain segment of the uh, the audience responds but uh watch this space uh that's certainly a positive development this week we have the eight the WTA 500 event in Abu Dhabi Rabakina is playing there and she plays the winner of the first round match between Danielle Collins and Naomi Osaka Osaka incidentally is playing doubles with Ons Jabeur isn't she uh, Jabeur is the second seed in the single she plays the winner of Emma Raducanu versus Marie Bozkova uh, we've got Krejcikova Sakari Hadadjmaya and Noskova all in the draws so uh, fun things happening there the WTA is also in Transylvania this week for a 250 event so look out for fun uh, player entrances wearing sort of vampire type garb uh, it's it's a single use gab but a gag but I, I do enjoy it every year in Transylvania the ATP is in Marseille without Yannick Sinner uh, but they do have Andy Murray who's drawn the best player in the world in round one Thomas Machac uh, Hubert Hercatch and Grigor Dimitrov are the top two seeds there and the ATP also has 250 events in Cordoba Argentina and in Dallas Texas with Tiafo Manorino Shelton and Tommy Paul playing there and that's about your lots for our first week uh, re re-immersing ourselves in the tennis world after the Australian Open it's it's been okay after all I think on on like Monday Tuesday we were a bit like oh my god tennis is happening we're gonna have to follow it and watch it and talk about it and it all just feels <laughs> a bit much uh, but give it you know give it a day or two and we're all like well yeah tennis can't wait. Um, we have a mascot for this episode. That mascot is Albert. Albert is incredibly stately. Uh, he's owned by the Ganko family, Emily, Josie and Benjamin. Emily is a long-time listener and has introduced the pod to all of her siblings, which is absolutely lovely. And Albert is a two-and-a-half-year-old golden retriever. His interests include eating, long walks on the beach, rolling around in the mud, stealing fish from the hands of unsuspecting fishermen, making friends and once again eating. And honestly, he's he's regal and statesman-like is how I would describe Albert. He's incredibly beautiful, strong, uh, strong man's best friend energy from Albert. So thank you very much uh, for bringing Albert into our lives. We've got our mascots, the, the, uh, the, the situation I've got Darwin into, the responsibility for that in our latest newsletter has very much been shifted to Darwin. Uh, so I'm very into the Darwin <laughs> curse. 
<laughs> Apparently it's all Darwin's <laughs> fault, not mine. Uh, David's got Francis and Matt has Haida and Soma. Billy Jean uh, has been at my feet on the heated blanket throughout this recording. She's sponsored by Billy Jean King and Alana Kloss. We have top folks and executive producers, Greg, Chris, Jamie and Jeff. And we have shout outs, Matt. We have Lara Burgess, who is in Wimbledon. Hello, Lara. I feel like we've said hello to Lara before uh, and we've been unable to come up with tennis, Lara, Lara's before. Well, Lara's given us one, actually. Lara Aruabarena. Oh, very very good. Mm. Well done, Lara. I commentated on one of her matches once and it was... It was quite exhausting. Lovely name, though. And I've, I've been in Wimbledon today. I've walked Billie Jean on Wimbledon Common uh, this morning. And it was lovely. Marvellous. And obviously, we love Wimbledon. Uh, thank you, Lara. Yeah, thank you. We've also got Michael Simlinger, who is, fittingly for this episode, from a small village close to Linz, Austria. Oh, hey. Perfect. Uh, like Michael Chang. And Michael Stick. And and Mikhail Penforsch. Can we have that spelling? Probably not. Different different church or well, pew you, well, or Well, you something. tell us. What's, what, how is, my, is Michael classically spelling his name? No. Matt? M-I-K-A-E-L for this yes, one. Yes, I know what oh, Penforsch is. <laughs> we all know about Penforsch. <laughs> <laughs> what about our Michael, Matt? Mm, this is this is a classic spelling, like Michael Moe. Michael oh. Moe. Love who I've now, mentioned, who I've now mentioned on two consecutive podcasts. Big. I, Thank you, I Michael. Watched play. I watched him play last week against Holger Rune. And uh, uh, Holger Rune had a, had a comical haircut. <laughs> he took oh, off yeah, his hat. Bad things are happening to mm. hair in in to young men's hair in in tennis <laughs> at the moment uh, yeah too bad maybe i'm just out of touch but i don't like it uh thank you michael and finally we have jen chamberlain in los angeles hi jen like, like jen, jen jennifer Jenny, brady jennifer brady who's having a tough time of late and and she's she uh, she's suffering with her knee injury again i think i i really felt felt for her when i heard about that and Jennifer Capriati? Mm, Wasn't she a absolutely. Jen sometimes? Jen Capriati? Yes. It sounds good, yeah. Does does the name Jen Chamberlain mean anything to you, David? Does she live sorry with to, you? Sorry to put you on the spot like this. <laughs> if I that say ref- no... That is a reference to a uh, shout-out where David <laughs> declared, she's living in my house, just <laughs> to explain... I don't. I don't think so, yeah, Matt. That's fine. Jen says. A side note to David: You would never remember me, but I used to do freelance work in the states for the LA and Indian Wells events back in your ATP days. I would help out Mickey and Sharko with the media room, and eventually did several years of research freelancing for NBC and USA at the Slams. Fantastic. I also knew Alex. Your mate, oh, Alex, oh, Alex Kennison. That's marvellous. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. Jen, thank you so much. Thank for, you, Jen. For jogging my 50-year-old memory and for being a friend of the pod. Jen, send us stories of, uh, of young David Law, please. 
thank you very much for supporting the pod thank you to all of our friends as I say the Australian Open review show is recorded and it is up and it is available now and it features incredible voice notes we've got Pam Shriver Matt Futterman Hannah Wilkes uh, cameraman Matthew for the first time on the voice notes and Simon Briggs as well so that's up now and available for friends and our rescheduled live Q&A show was supposed to be last Tuesday while we're all still in Melbourne. David's been busy getting well. He is well. And that means we have rescheduled for a week later. It's going to be live at 7pm UK time tomorrow as we record this 7pm Tuesday evening. So if you've been thinking of becoming a friend, then you have until then uh, to be able to subscribe and watch live. If not, then it'll be available uh, as a standalone and as a podcast uh, on demand anytime for friends of the tennis podcast. So the link to become a friend, as always, is in our show notes. That's tomorrow. We'll be back with our regular podcast a week from today and we'll speak to you then. 